This is Nick Jaina time. I'm reading from my book, which is entitled Get It While You Can. Chapter 9 The first person to circumnavigate the world was a slave. His name was Enrique. He was captured by Ferdinand Magellan on one of the explorer's early trips to Malaysia. Magellan brought his new slave back to Spain with him, then brought him along on his trip around the world, one that Magellan himself did not survive. Because Enrique had come from Malaysia to Spain, he had already traveled further than the rest of the crew, so when they reached Asia again, Enrique was completing the first ever circumnavigation. Because he was a slave, almost nothing is known about him. Magellan gets credit for being the first around the world, even though he himself never made it all the way. So let's not underestimate what can be accomplished even when you have no freedom. When I finally visited a prison, an actual prison with concrete walls and razor wire fences, I started to think about how much freedom I actually have. The quest to become successful at music seems almost inseparable at times from the quest to become famous. To be a prisoner is the opposite of being famous. No one sees you, no one writes about you, no one knows your name. You're as close to not existing as a person can be, and when you actually do stop existing, it's possible that no one will remember you. Maybe the worst part of prison is that you don't get to be in the world anymore, not just that you're not allowed to see the world, but that you're not allowed to be seen by the world. You've lost the privilege to be known. I was booked to play four shows at Folsom Prison with my band, which included Dana, a cellist, and Dorota, a violinist. I'd only recently met the two of them. We were joined by my longtime trumpeter, John. Our first rehearsal was in Marshall Park in downtown Sacramento on a Sunday night. It was the same night my friend Stealth played on the Grammy Awards in Los Angeles with the Lumineers, who were nominated for Best New Artist. Usually when I play a show, there's some part of me that hopes that more will come of a particular performance than just what happens in that room. Maybe someone important will see me play and want to help my career. Maybe lots of people will tweet about it, or photos and recordings will get passed around. Maybe I'll meet a girl and fall in love. However, there is no internet in prison. There is no one to fall in love with. There are no cell phones. There are no important members of the music industry. No one will hear about what happens in that room. We met our consigliere, Jim, at the gates, and he helped guide us through the different checkpoints that bring visitors further inside the prison. The women had been told to dress modestly and not reveal any skin. We had to measure Dana's skirt to make sure it was the appropriate length. I asked Dorota what it felt like to be able to incite riots based on how she dressed. She said half-jokingly that it felt powerful. When that heavy lock clanked free and the door opened up, to lead us out of the dark vestibule into the bright Folsom prison yard, my left knee wobbled. Check-in had been so slow and unexciting that 
When we finally saw daylight, we couldn't help but be struck with the realization, oh, this is it. There were now actual prisoners walking around. Some of them had probably killed people or, you know, worse. But instead of the Shawshank Redemption, I was reminded of high school. It was a modern government institution and so everything had been built in the name of efficiency. The lighting, the floors, the chairs all felt like high school. The prisoners weren't wearing stripes or handcuffs. There were no bars on the doors and the guards didn't walk down concrete halls with their footsteps echoing as they whistled ominously and ran their batons across the cell doors. The prisoners went about doing different tasks like anyone does throughout their day. I could almost see myself forgetting that I was actually in prison. There are lots of places that you can't leave whenever you want. Cruise ships, Space Mountain, most jobs. What was most striking for me about prison was that, from the inside, it felt like just another place to hang out. The yard itself was an enormous, ugly octagon. There was poorly maintained grass in the center, and around the edges were concrete walkways covered in bird shit. The whole complex felt like something that cost a lot of money. Money that could go towards other, more enjoyable parts of society. At the same time, it felt like Money was purposely spent there to intimidate and belittle instead of to raise and inspire. Which, of course it was. Jim led us around, more doors locking behind us in a very thorough way. He left us alone to set up our gear in a tiny concrete room while he fetched the inmates. If you were prone to claustrophobia or panic attacks, if you let your mind wander about what a power outage or a riot or a total breakdown of order would be like in there, well, it was best to keep your mind from going there. When the inmates came in, they were not shackled or restrained. They had the look about them of people who had been told where to go and what to do for so long that they didn't have any velocity anymore. Kindergartners who are shuffled along a pathway in a similarly regimented way look like they could randomly run off the path any second and upset all that adult order. Prisoners are always depicted in film and television as being full of rage and danger. In reality, all their power has been taken away. There is nothing to be gained from pushing against the system by this point. There are smoothed down stones. Our first show together as a quartet took place at 9 in the morning. It's hard for most musicians to feel warmed up and ready to play music early in the day, but especially so when your audience is a mental ward. Though the men were docile, some of them were eggs scrambled in their shells. A man with big bushy eyebrows sat in the audience with his arms folded and made twitchy sexual gestures at my new violinist. Have you guys read anything good lately? I asked. Playboy was the response. Whenever I was stuck for something to say, which was often, I'd turn to Dorota and tell everyone how she was a scientist and was traveling to Antarctica that winter to dive under the ice and study bugs. The allure of Folsom Prison, of course, is due to Johnny Cash, who wrote a song called Folsom Prison Blues about a man who shot another man just to watch him die. Johnny was never actually locked up in Folsom or any other prison. He first heard about Folsom 
when he was in the Air Force and watched the film Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. The audience on his live album at Folsom Prison sounds a lot rowdier than any I experienced. Of course, by 1968 when he recorded it, Johnny was a world-class star. Imagine spending your life in confinement and getting to see one of the best performers in the world, someone whose songs you knew. Johnny was in prime form in Folsom. The environment injects a unique energy into every part of his performance. It makes you wonder why more live albums aren't recorded in places where the performer feels a little uncomfortable. The response to our second gig of the day was much warmer. We played in a library to 40 or so men. From the moment we began setting up, they were politely curious about us. One of them even asked if we liked the band Lumineers. From his perspective, we were playing the same genre of music, especially compared with everything else on the Grammys. We explained that we actually knew the band personally, but these men didn't seem to believe us. This led to the question of why we weren't performing on the Grammys. A very earnest and well-intentioned man raised his hand. At what point did you realize that you weren't going to be successful at music, he wanted to know. Everyone in the room kind of winced at the question, but I knew what he meant. You can't fake fame. Either someone has heard of you or they haven't. Even these prisoners had heard of the Lumineers. I told him that I've learned to gauge success by my ability to keep doing the projects that I want to do, that all I've ever really wanted to do is play music with people I love. Ideally, people will listen and I'll still have enough money to feed myself and travel the world. As long as these are my circumstances, I will consider myself a success. Some of the prisoners started nodding as I was talking, including a thoughtful-looking man in the back with a goatee. He had a knit cap on, and I'd like to imagine that his nickname was Iceman. When I finished my speech about the true meaning of success, he chimed in by saying, And that's your Grammy. For a moment, it felt like we were in an inspirational prison movie where we thought we were teaching the prisoners something, but really they were teaching us. Tears, hugs, freeze frame. It turned out to be one of the most civilized, dignified gigs I've ever played. We could tell how much it meant to them that they got to hear live music. Most adventures in playing live music are tests of your willingness to debase yourself. There was none of that in the library in Folsom. All four shows were much more interactive and conversational than a typical show in a bar full of free adults. For one, nobody had a cell phone to worry over. I finished playing my song in narrow way, and after everyone clapped, a man sitting in the front row said, Say that last line again. So I recited it to him. Ten million kisses on a statue leave a dent. Every pair of lips takes away a piece of sediment. It is slow. But it means so much more to me than all the words you said when we were in love. What does that mean, he asked. I told him that it was about how your devotion to someone can slowly wear that person down, that needing something from someone has a way of diminishing them. I told him it was about following someone down a path that I thought was right. And only after I'd gone too far did I realize that it was wrong. But it had looked so right for so much of the time I was on it. I started to hesitate a bit as I said this. 
knowing that words about regret carried much more weight in a place where everyone had all day, every day to think about their mistakes. It was only inside that I started to notice how many times I mentioned prison in my songs. There I was, with no real knowledge of prison, using prison metaphors in front of actual prisoners. It made me scrutinize the motives behind my metaphors. Intellectually, I react to prison the same way I react to war, neither of which I've actually experienced. It's incredible to me that the same creatures with the tenderness and nuance to produce Chopin's preludes and Picasso's seated woman can effectively say, the best way to solve arguments is to drop big metal objects on towns and the best way to deal with lawbreakers is to put them in stone boxes. I'm not advocating that we swing the prison doors open wide, but I'm disturbed by how little we think about why we lock people up. As I walked around and met the inmates at Folsom, I kept thinking, this doesn't seem right. Prison in its modern incarnation still feels more like a temporary solution, one that has been around for hundreds of years. Adam Gopnik wrote in The New Yorker, Mass incarceration on a scale almost unexampled in human history is a fundamental fact of our country today. Perhaps the fundamental fact, as slavery was the fundamental fact of 1850. In truth, there are more black men in the grip of the criminal justice system, in prison, on probation, or on parole, than were in slavery then. Overall, there are now more people under correctional supervision in America, more than six million, than were in the Gulag Archipelago under Stalin at its height. When you're interacting with them, you don't know what the inmates have done to wind up in prison. You probably don't want to know. You could never know all the circumstances of how they arrived at their own particular horrifying moment anyway. It's not like they have name tags telling their story, and it's not like they're just going to bring it up. I sure didn't feel like I was in a position to ask. Only later did our guide let us in on some of the prisoners' stories. One of the men who had said our music was really pretty and who suggested that we should call our band Jesus, with a hyphen, had killed his parents because he was tormented by demons and was trying to free their souls. A few of the prisoners were songwriters and wanted to play their songs for us. After we finished our set in the library, we went to a little room where they kept the musical instruments. A prisoner named Marty played us a song called Chains, a very literal song about the regret he felt about being locked up every bit as heartbreaking as you could imagine such a song to be. I found out later that Marty was having trouble because he wasn't affiliated with any gang. Transferring to another prison wasn't much of an option. Prisoners would sometimes kill a new transfer if they thought he was too soft. An older man named Ken picked up an electric guitar that wasn't plugged into anything and played a jazz tune he wrote called C'est La Vie, about a woman who repeatedly spurns a man's advances and every verse until the end of the song when she finally decides that she wants him. You're too late, baby, he says. Say la vie. I found out later that Ken had been in Folsom for 30 years. One terrible night in the early 80s, he came home and found his wife having sex with another man. He killed both of them in a fury and had been sitting in prison ever since. Marty played another song while Ken sat there with the electric guitar in his lap 
In between verses, he played an unamplified blues solo that was everything blues is supposed to be and never is, full of frustrated wrong notes. Marty's voice cut through the sunniness of the day. I don't want to die with no one knowing I was here. It shouldn't be more important to play to fashionable young people in hip cities than it is to play for men who have heard very little live music in decades. I mean, I understand why playing for fashionable people is more important for my career and my possible dating life, but the experience means so much less to them than it does to the men who never get to hear music. It could be argued that since prisoners rarely get to hear live music, it's not much of a compliment if they like mine. Any band could come into that prison and play any old music and probably change some lives, but that doesn't make it any less valuable. The next day we played two more shows. The first one was again in a small room in the mental ward. As we stood there and watched the prisoners file in, one of them got really riled up and tried to talk to the recreational therapist who was holding open the door. The prisoner was upset about something that had happened in the yard. Man, I'm so mad about what he did. We'll talk about it later. But I'm really pissed. Sit down and watch the show. We'll talk about it after. After we played music for an hour and the prisoners were filing out, the therapist asked the man what he wanted to talk about. The prisoner looked surprised for a second. Man, after listening to that music, I forget what I was mad about. At our last show, a band of prisoners opened for us. A man named Adam played electric guitar while his friend played an electronic drum set with the volume turned down so as not to be disruptive. In the middle of the set, Adam said that his friends had made him a t-shirt for his birthday and had dared him to wear it. He tore open his prison-issued jacket. The shirt had been cut into ribbons at the waist. Rock star, it said, with pink stars around the letters. They'd made it to embarrass him, but he decided to embrace it. After the set, a man named Drifter asked how he could get a hold of my music. He gave me a pen and paper and I started writing down my website. We don't have the internet here, he said. On our way out of the prison, we had to wait in a small vestibule for a few minutes with a group of medical personnel and an empty stretcher. They were joking around and seemed really lighthearted. I turned to John to make a joke. John was staring at the stretcher. I looked back at it and noticed a bulge that looked like it could have been a pair of feet. Then I saw what could have been a head, and then I realized that it wasn't an empty stretcher, but the dead body of a prisoner. They made sure to check his ID on the way out, but his body was finally allowed to leave the prison. I wondered about his final days. Maybe while watching the Grammys, he imagined that he was in that fancy audience, or up on the stage. Maybe you dreamt that he was a sailor circling the globe. You can't lock up the human mind, so you have to lock up the body, but as soon as the mind and spirit are gone, the body can leave. It makes all the sense in the world. And yet when we got out of prison and drove home in silence, really thinking about it, it didn't make sense at all. None of it did. I'm on the phone with my friend, Dorota. 
She's in Santa Cruz. Hi, Dorota. Hi. <laughs> uh, Dorota was with me the first time I played in Folsom Prison, which was also the first gig that we ever played together. It was in a little room to a mental ward. Uh, uh, we had just met two days before, and then we were playing the show, and I just wanted to know what you remembered from from that day and how weird was it to start off playing in a prison with people that you just met? Well, you just met me. Um, yeah, at the time it was, it seemed fine. Like I have a tendency to just kind of chug through things and be like, this is the thing I'm doing. It's good. But in retrospect, I'm like, wow, that was pretty crazy playing with, in a little band that I had never played in before in a small concrete room with bad acoustics to like 30 psych patients. And before we played in that room, I remember uh, the guy who took us around and was showing us all the things told us, he was like, well, don't worry if people are getting up in the middle of your set and leaving the room. Uh, <laughs> a lot of them are on drugs where they have to use the bathroom like all the time. <laughs> So that's just gonna happen, and I, I was like, "Wow, okay." I forgot that I should have included that. <laughs> Not the usual warning you get before playing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I remember the guys all filed in, and I had played in the prison a couple times before, but I had never played to the psych patients, which was a totally different experience. They walked in, and one of the guys was really upset about something, and a lot of the guys just looked dead in the face and it was kind of depressing and felt like we were supposed to try to like cheer up these guys but it seemed like pretty impossible with like these thoughtful songs <laughs> um yeah i really wonder what that meant yeah <laughs> how they received that but i think that at least a few of them got something good out of it like i remember even in that room like it's really interesting because I feel like in every set we played in the prison, every, like almost after every song, people had questions and they wanted to talk about it. And I remember that happening even in the psych ward. Um, and that seemed like the most, like the best part about the whole thing was just getting to talk about. Yeah, I love the questions. Yeah. Um, I wish that happened more in shows. Because yeah. like sometimes it's hard to know how well it's going. And if there's a question like... Yeah. Like, what did they ask? Like, what does that line mean? Or like, why did, why, what was that song about? Or something like that. Yeah. If only Sometimes they would just talk, right? <laughs> if only every show we could lock everyone in a small shitty room and take away all their cell phones and freedom. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah, but that room was <laughs> tough. <laughs> like, good. <laughs> It's interesting when I first posted that article online, I, I got a lot of positive feedback. And then I got one friend who wrote me like a really angry email. And she was like, my mother was killed by somebody. I have to go to the parole hearing every year and look at this asshole who like took my mother away. And like, how can you just say these guys are great? And, you know, and it yeah. like, I didn't feel like I was glorifying that, but I, I really took her point of like, don't forget, like these guys ruined somebody's life. Totally. You know, as as bad as as bad as whatever you've done, like you've never like taken somebody's mother away from her, whatever it is. And yeah, you know, I, it it just adds to the complication. It's like I I wasn't saying like open the doors, let them out, but like 
what else do we do? You know, do you yeah. ruin a life for ruining a life? Or, it's kind I mean, of, yeah, it's forced me to think about where I stand on these things because I yeah. have had like more simplified ideas where I'm like, oh, rapists, like, yeah, just kill them. <laughs> and then I'm yeah. like, oh, wait, is that really helping? Or like not helping, but it's not really the best thing that we can do. And so mm-hmm. like, I don't know. Obviously, in an ideal world, we would live in a culture where that's not. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, not the the current world that we live in, and we like try to change that. But how to do that? I think like the yeah. thing I I I started to realize was I don't think there was a lot of guys in there that were like proud of what they did. You know, I don't think. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of people that really, maybe a tiny section of people that enjoyed killing somebody or, ra- you know, like yeah. you don't do it because you're like feeling good about yourself. And so like it comes out of this pain and darkness and that doesn't excuse it, but it also is like, uh, you know, it's something to work with. I don't know.
This has been Nick Chena time. Thank you for spending that time with me. Today I read one long chapter from my book. Uh, the book is called Get It While You Can. It's available from Perfect Day Publishing. All of the musical accompaniment is written and recorded by me. Uh, this theme music is by Richie Green. Good job, Richie. What you heard today is what I do live around the world, 150 nights a year. My book is available online along with tour dates at nickjana.com. That's N-I-C-K-J-A-I-N-A. Don't put the A before the N or the I. <laughs>